The Cunningham household is currently uh, making its way through the uh, uh, Marvel movies, the superhero movies. I, I, I did not grow up being a superhero guy. I, I never really got into it. And uh, one of my really, really good friends uh, was in his last week of cancer treatment. And I you know, wanted, wanted to do something with him. And he's a huge superhero fan. And so he, I went to the, uh, the new uh, Avengers Endgame movie that's in the theaters right now. Some of you love that. Some of you don't care. It doesn't matter for the sermon. But so I go to the, this Avengers Endgame, which is the last movie of like 10 years of movies. Um, or I've been told it's the beginning of another one, but regardless, uh, I went to it skeptical, cynical, and I must admit, I have, I have bought in. I am, I'm officially on the Avengers train. And so what I did is I came back to my, to our house and I said, all right, we're going to, Friday night is superhero movie night and we're just going to slowly work our way through a decade of movies that will lead us up to, you know, the Avengers end game. So we've been doing that together as a family, uh, by we, I mean me and the boys, Abby makes about five minutes and then she's asleep. Uh, but about five movies into it, I said, you know, this is interesting. Um, it's odd that we love these movies because my boys are totally into it with me. I said, it's odd that we're, we love these movies so much because we know how they're going to end before we even watch them. I mean, let's be honest. We know how this is going. There's going to be a superhero. There's going to be a bad guy. And the superhero always wins. Why do we even watch them? We know how they turn out. And without missing a beat, one of my sons says, yeah, but it's fun to watch them win. And I said, that will preach. (laughs) That will preach. You know, today we're going to encounter, for the first of several times in the book of Acts, the central victory, the central win of Christianity in general and Christ himself. You know the story. You've heard it many times before. You know what's going to happen. You know Jesus wins. You know he rises from the dead. But I want to remind you, perhaps urge you on a Memorial Day weekend, not an Easter Sunday, not a special Sunday, Memorial Day Sunday, I want to urge you to consider how fun it is to watch him win. How amazing this victory is. And it's very pertinent today because we are, for the first time, going to witness the resurrection and its reality explode upon the world. The audience in our passage doesn't know the story. They didn't know how it was going to turn out. Many of them maybe have heard of Jesus. Many of them may not. Those that did knew that 50 days ago, Rome crucified him. And they're back together. Unexpectedly, this crazy Pentecost thing happens. And Peter stands up. And for the first time, he preaches the resurrection, the victory to this crowd. And we get to watch them hear it and encounter it for the first time. We get to watch the world find out about Jesus' resurrection for the first time. It's fun to watch. Peter's Pentecost sermon is two parts. 
The first we looked at last week wherein Peter took up the challenge of explaining to his Jewish audience how and why their Jewish identity had now been pretty much just dismantled and thrust upon every culture and language such that anyone, not just Israel, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That was the culmination of last week's sermon and his first point. But that culmination only then begs the question of all questions, well then who is Lord? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, well then who is this Lord? That's what the second half of the sermon answers. And like I said, what will emerge for the first time is the central apologetic of Acts of the New Testament and of the church even up until this day, Peter preaches the first Easter sermon in history. That Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead, therefore Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. I have two points this morning. Um, And I'm telling you up front, they are incredibly disproportionate. And here's why I'm telling you that. Um, My first point is basically going to cover the entire text except for the last five words, okay? So it is far longer than the first point. So uh, if you are eager to get going with your Memorial Day weekend and I'm in this first point forever and I say, now the second point, and you're like, oh my goodness, he's gonna eat up the whole afternoon. That's not true, okay? So I'm telling you up front, long first point, quick application, second point. Here they are. We're gonna see the resurrection as the vindication of Jesus to the world, and then the benediction of Jesus to the world. So vindication and benediction. First, the vindication of Jesus. And this is where we're really going to work with his sermon. Verses 22 through 24, what they do is they introduce the point that Peter is going to make. Um, and in his sermon, the first time, he introduces Jesus of Nazareth. This figure that, like I said, many would probably have known, but potentially some of the crowd may not have even heard of at this point. Verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And then what he's going to do is he's going to build up to the, to the surprising point by talking about God's sovereignty over the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? Life, verse 22, death, 23, and then he culminates in the resurrection, 24. Let's just follow along so we see how he sets the sermon up. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. So he's picking up on what is already taking over the ancient world a little bit, which is there's this crazy, strange movement going on of this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And rumors are that there's signs and wonders that accompanying his ministry And at that point, what they're thinking is, oh, he must be a prophet. To Israel, um, it's not unusual for signs and wonders to accompanying the prophetic ministry of God's prophets. Think of a Moses or an Elijah um, whose ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders and so forth. So they're thinking, okay, perhaps perhaps Jesus of Nazareth, perhaps we've got a, a new prophet on our hands. But then it gets interesting. Not only is God's sovereignty all over the life of Jesus of Nazareth, God is sovereign over the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 23, 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, this is divine sovereignty and human responsibility at its best in one verse. One of my favorite verses to point to people to when they ask me about the tension. Do I believe God is absolutely sovereign? Yes, I do. Do I believe that man, men, women, and children are absolutely accountable for every single action they take, make? Yes, I do. Why? Acts 2, 23. This Jesus that was delivered up according to the definite foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Both are at play there. How does that work? I don't know, but it's in the Bible, so I believe that tension is true. But the point here is that God determined the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Not merely as he determines all things. The Jews believe that. Jews believe that God, all, everybody's days are numbered. But as though his death was a part of some great plan by God. It says, according to the definite plan of God. So you have a prophet that dies and a death that is part of this strange, mysterious, great plan of God's sovereignty. Now it's starting to get interesting. But the shocker, the twist that nobody saw coming is that God then raised Jesus of Nazareth from his own death. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now we've entered into crazy town, okay? A prophet of God, not unusual. A prophet that dies according to God's plan, it's getting a little weird and unusual, not not used to that. A prophet that God raises from the dead is unthinkable. N.T. Wright is, is correct to point out that first century people knew that dead people stay dead. Society did not need the enlightenment to teach us that. So this idea from critics of Christianity that, um, that our origins are essentially that first century world was just kind of a primitive, undeveloped society susceptible to outlandish myths. And so what happened is the apostles, right here in this passage, decided to promulgate a myth that Jesus of Nazareth somehow rose from the dead and convinced the ancient world to believe it. And voila, you've got yourself Christianity. That is nonsense. And quite frankly, historically lazy in its scholarship. They knew dead people stayed dead. The world would never believe such a preposterous claim. Moreover, the apostles, and this is N.T. Wright's big contention, the apostles never would have in their wildest imaginations made up such a preposterous story that was completely outside and beyond the realm of plausibility of their imaginations to try to somehow keep this Jesus movement going. No, verse 24 is as an outlandish claim in the first century as it is in the 21st century. 
And so the rest of his sermon here is going to defend that claim, is going to defend 24. And what Peter does very wisely contextually to his audience is he turns to the Jews' most beloved patriarch, King David, to defend the resurrection. And he does two things with David. First, he shows from, Dave, he shows from David the prediction of the resurrection And then he shows from David the implication of the resurrection. Now, let's watch him do both of those. So he's going to use David to show that uh, prediction that this was always going to happen, and then the implication of what it means that it did happen. Okay, first he turns to Psalm 16 to show that David actually did predict this. Psalm 16 was a very cherished psalm of the Jewish people, but there was one strange line that was tough to understand. Look at verse 25. And, uh, and Peter points to it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now that's strange. David is saying you will not abandon to death or let your holy one see corruption. And as Peter is going to say in a moment, David is most definitively dead and corrupting in a tomb. But Peter is saying here that Psalm 16 has been misread. It wasn't talking about David. It was talking about David's Lord that David is referencing to Watch him do that in verse 29. This is what he says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. I can say with confidence, y'all, David's dead. Psalm 16 could not have been about David's fate. Instead, David, Peter is saying, was speaking prophetically. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Not David, but the Christ that would come from David. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Christ. Christ in the New Testament is the word for Messiah. And Jews knew that the Messiah, the Christ, would come from the line of David as God promised. And Peter's saying, look, Psalm 16 was never about David. It was about the Christ who would come from David. And then verse 32, this Jesus. So David said the Christ would rise and not see corruption. Now, this Jesus God raised up. And of that... We are all witnesses. And so there you go. For the first time, he has said that this Jesus is risen. And we've seen it. We and many others are witnesses to the unthinkable. The reason why Peter, 50 days before this, was abandoning Jesus... And now here is proclaiming Jesus to the ancient world is the transformation of seeing Christ risen. 
They were done with Jesus. He obviously was not who they hoped him to be until he came back, which means he obviously is exactly who they hoped him to be. Not just a prophet like David, but the Lord of David and everyone. And that's where Peter turns in Psalm 110 to make that second point. Not only a prediction of the resurrection, but the implication of the resurrection. Verse 34. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, a very cherished psalm of the Hebrew people. The God of Israel uh, was the world's first monotheistic claim. The first, the first people, the first religion to say there is one God. The Lord your God, the Lord is one one true God, and that one true God is the God of Israel. That's the central truth of the Jewish religion. But then there is David in Psalm 110 talking, it seems, about two lords. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then here in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. David has only one Lord to say Otherwise is blasphemy. But here it seems that David has two. Who is this mysterious Lord of David that the Lord of heaven is speaking to, saying Lordish things like sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Peter is saying that is Jesus. Jesus is not only a prophet. Jesus is not only the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. Of course, we are not to a robust Trinitarian theology at this point in the New Testament. And they're wrestling through it. But his point, Peter's point is, Jesus is Lord and the resurrection proves it. You see, death is not a problem for a prophet. They're not claiming to be God. They're claiming to speak for God. And so they die. But the prophet is buried And their words that supposedly came from God carry on after their death, whether in writing or oral tradition. But what if the central claim of one's religion is that our prophet is our Lord? Our prophet is our God. Well, now death's a big problem for your religion. Because you can't be Lord and dead. You could be prophet and dead. You can't be Lord and dead because it would mean your God is dead. So death's no problem for a prophet. Death is a huge problem for someone claiming to be the Lord. And Jesus unashamedly claimed the latter. But Peter is saying it's no longer a problem. Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. He has won. He has defeated the One enemy only God could defeat. He has defeated death, which means he is God. Leading to this climactic conclusion of Peter's Pentecost sermon, verse 36. It all comes down to this. Let all the house of Israel. Now that he's saying, let it be known, not just to the hearers. The house of Israel, that's the family of Israel. That's the people of Israel. He's saying, listen all of Israel. Let it be known for certain that God has made him both 
Lord and Christ. Don't get hung up on the God has made him as if, as if he became, it, it's probably best to translate that, God has declared him. When God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, God declared to all of heaven and earth that Jesus of Nazareth is yes, the Christ, but more significantly, he has declared that Christ and Lord are one and the same. This amazing turn of the story where Oh, the Christ is not the hero coming from God. The Christ, the Messiah, is God coming to be the hero. Our Lord is our Messiah. Now, I want to pause here and emphasize two words in his declaration. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, and then listen to this audacity, for certain. Earlier he said, for certain David is in the tomb. Here he says, for certain, Jesus is risen from the dead. You know, all of us ask the greater questions of life, don't we? Is there a God? If so, which God is the one true God? Are they all the same? How do I get to God? These greater questions of life, they're irresistible to the human soul. Everybody asks them, you ask them, we all ask them. Even if you would identify yourself as irreligious, you have asked those questions and your answer is no. But we've all asked those questions, we've all wrestled with them. And I think to some extent, the greater questions of life come frustrating because it all seems like one big guessing game. Who's to know? Well, that's true for all Except one. Every religion, every worldview, every philosophy, every single ultimate belief is, in the end, a faith commitment. And of course, Christianity is itself a faith commitment. It's central to our faith. We call ourselves a faith, not a religion, for that very reason. But it is a faith commitment that is grounded in a certainty. Peter says, for certain, Jesus is risen from the dead, which gives followers of Jesus an utterly unique certainty upon which to base their faith. So what I'm trying to say here today is that I'm not up here on neutral ground contending for your faith, asking you to believe this out of all the other choices and trying to make my case the most compelling one for you to believe. That's not the nature of Christian preaching. It's not the nature of the sermon in Acts 2. I am here on certain ground contending for your faith. That is to say, I am here telling you it's true, certainly true, so you need to believe it. Or I'm wrong. He's not risen. And Peter is here creating the world's greatest hoax and unimaginable conspiracy theory that somehow worked and changed the world forever. Literally, the majority of the world's population in history have believed a lie. Perhaps. But history is without a doubt on my side on this. And I just don't have enough faith in secularism's claim that there are no miracles, I don't have enough faith to believe that in order to deny the historical evidence of this miracle. Jesus 
of Nazareth is risen from the dead. Historical fact. Which means Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. Historical fact. I'm not guessing, I'm telling. Who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. But if Jesus is Lord, then we got a big problem. Or so it seems. Which leads me to my second, much briefer point. The resurrection was not just the vindication that Jesus is Lord. It is the benediction of Jesus to the world. Peter's sermon does not end with celebration, but actually with condemnation. Look, one time, one last time at verse 36, and we'll be done with that verse. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. It doesn't end there. This Jesus whom you crucified. It's those final five words that lead to our next passage's famous plea. If you're familiar, you know what's coming up next. They cry out to Peter, cut to the heart. They say, what shall we do to be saved? Now we hear those words, to be saved. And we naturally think through our modern Christian lens of what it means to be saved. But that's not what they're thinking. Here's what they're thinking. Peter preaches to the crowd that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. And he convinces them by the resurrection that this is true. And then he ends the sermon with this Jesus whom you crucified. Do you get what just happened? They just realized he's Lord and then they just realized they killed their Lord. Uh Uh-oh. That's not good. And that's what Peter's confronting them with. You killed God. And God is back from the dead. Do you know what they're thinking? He's coming to get me. He's come back to enact his revenge as he should. Peter, what can we do to be saved? From the risen Lord Jesus, who surely is going to destroy us, who killed him. Do you ever stop to think of it that way? We view Easter as joyful morning, but we should expect it to be dreadful morning. If Jesus is back from the dead, one would only assume that he has come back for those who killed him. And by the way, that's not just the Jews in the audience. That's you and that's me. We are the lawless hands that put him to death, to use the language in the text. By way of application this morning, I want you to see yourself in that crowd realizing, oh no, I just killed Jesus. I was a part of that crowd 50 days ago shouting, crucify him, crucifying. I didn't know what to do. Now I realize, oh my goodness, he's Lord and I was the one responsible. I want you to wrestle with the weight of their dilemma because it's your dilemma too. When we say Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I don't think we realize what we are admitting there. What we're saying is that I caused him to bleed. What we're saying there is I nailed him to the cross. I pierced his side. I put on the thorn of crowns. 
I killed the Lord. My sins caused it. And the Lord is risen from the dead. That shouldn't be good news because you know how stories go. He's come back from the dead to get his revenge. My son is right. It's fun to watch the superhero win. It's, it's fun to watch him defeat the bad guy unless you're the bad guy. Unless you're the villain. Suddenly it's not fun anymore. It's terrifying. Because every single story is the same. You have the hero, you have the villain, you have the moment where it looks like the villain has won and then the hero has his resurrection moment and avenges his defeat. That's not just superhero movie, that's every good film and novel. You get it. Good guy, bad guy, looks like the bad guy won, good guy wins in the end over the bad guy. That's what these movies are. They're called the Avengers, for goodness sake. And that's the story of Jesus. You have the hero, Jesus. You have the villains, us, sinners. You have the moment where it looks like the villains have won the cross. But then the hero has his grand resurrection moment and now as every story goes, it's time for the hero to avenge his death and defeat the villain. And then this glorious gospel twist unknown to any story, the hero comes back not to defeat the villains but to forgive the villains. The cross of his condemnation at our hands became the cross of our salvation by his scarred hands. These first words to the disciples after the resurrection, peace be with you. The second words to his disciples after the resurrection, peace be with you. I have not come back to destroy you for killing me. I've come back to say peace be with you. Resurrection should be an event that led to the world's destruction, but instead it is the event that led to the world's benediction. He is not an avenger. He is a forgiver. Let me thank him. Lord, thank you that though we do not deserve your mercy, we who put Christ to death, you have chosen to return and forgive. And nothing demonstrates that more than what we're about to do. This act preaches the sermon just as well as any sermon can preach. Your body broken, your blood shed. We caused this table, and yet you have used this table to save us. I pray that we would leave here not just knowing you are Lord, but rejoicing that you are Lord. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.